The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. Support for this podcast is provided by independent educational grants from Estellas, AstraZeneca, Bayer, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Merck Co. Incorporated, and Pfizer Incorporated. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. Uh, it's my pleasure to host another episode in our educational podcast series. And this specific episode is titled Cultural Barriers for Ethnic Minorities and is one of the several podcasts that we have that's really focusing in the space of DE&I. Um, my guest today um, is Dr. Adam Murphy, who's Assistant Professor of Urology at the Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine. Uh, we've had Dr. Murphy on before and he's been kind enough to join us again. But as a reminder, he uh, is really a thought leader in health disparities faced by minorities, uh, focusing on uh, prostate cancer as well as men's health, and uh, does a lot of work with active surveillance, underserved populations, as well as um, some more um, sort of uh, research investigative work in the realm of vitamin D deficiency, uh, genetics, and biomarkers in men. So Adam, first of all, thank you so much as always for, for supporting our endeavors here and, and for taking time out of your schedule to join us. Dr. Rahman, thank you for having me. It's been fun. And each of the three times we've gotten to do work together. So this will be fun too, I'm sure. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I really appreciate it. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm really happy to sort of, you know, pick your brain on this because I, I do think that... Um, that that hearing the perspective of somebody who is a minority, uh, but at the same time is obviously uh, a minority who has uh, uh, accomplished a great deal, is you know obviously uh, academic uh, urologist, uh, um, MBA degree, um, and it, but but I think that allows us to get some of your insight as to your experiences because I'm sure not everybody. Uh, when you're walking on the streets of Chicago, knows it's Dr. Adam Murphy. They probably will think of you as, you know, a Black African male, American male walking through the streets. So I'm sure you probably bring some very valuable perspective, especially when we think about medical care. I get, I call myself a chameleon <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, because I'm my my mom is from Mississippi. I am from Chicago, and I uh, am definitely growing up in in kind of the Black south side of Chicago, but have been very, very uh, kind of educated in predominantly white institutions, University of Chicago, Northwestern, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And so all that comes to kind of make me me, but I also look like an African-American male walking down the streets of Chicago. Yeah. (laughs) So let's start off and and, We'll start off maybe at a high level, but I do want to get into, you know, I know that you have a very personal experience that kind of ties into some of what we're going to talk about, but maybe just just start with, for our listeners, what are some of the barriers 
that impact um, health and healthcare delivery to, to some ethnic minorities. Uh, and I'm sure it's a broad ranging list, but maybe give us a flavor of what we're going to talk about. And then we can maybe hone down on a few specific, um, few specific talking points. You know, I think there are, it's, there are a lot. And I used to think that it's kind of everything. Um, and I know that sounds daunting, um, but I'll say that, uh, you know, the ones that I think that we should focus on are ones that are modifiable. Uh, so health literacy is one thing that I think comes up a lot. Uh, medical mistrust is another one. And then access to care. Um, the one thing that I think that, um, you know, is a key part of the medical mistrust bit is kind of the patient-physician relationship and communication. Um, you know, the other thing I would say is that there's been like a historical... Uh, kind of need to avoid going to the doctor for financial reasons historically. Um, for, um, and so people have a lot of trusted home remedies, you know, cultural practices around health that are um, unique. And sometimes in medicine, we don't learn about these things in med, med school. And so we can sometimes toss those ideas aside or kind of not give them enough weight and people don't, um, if they don't necessarily feel like their 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 traditions are respected, they that can also be a source of mistrust hmm. uh, for in terms of compliance with regimens, you know. Yeah, it's really interesting. I I had um, I can't remember, but I had Willie Underwood uh, on a podcast uh, probably about six or twelve months ago, and he told a very interesting story when he was um, either a junior attending or maybe he was even a resident in training. And um, he had an attending come and talk to him who said, you know, Willie, go talk to this patient. It's an African-American male. And this person is just non-compliant with their medications. So Willie says he, he goes in and talks to the patient. And it turns out the patient was non-compliant because they couldn't afford the medications that were being prescribed. So it wasn't non-compliance because they disagreed with the treatment plan. Mm -hmm. It was non-compliance because the treatment plan being prescribed financially was not part of what this person could afford. And, and it's interesting. Willie said to me, he said, and you know what the interesting thing was that never came up. He said, it, it didn't really, my connection with this person was because they could articulate to me that they could not afford the medications and, and they had been billed as being a medically non-compliant patient. Mm -hmm. And, and it, to, to get to your sort of, you know, therapeutic mistrust, it's, it's interesting where when you have this disconnect, you can very much see where a patient would have mistrust for potentially a system because of being labeled a certain way when perhaps the reality is vastly different than that. There's a lot of good, yes, no, I completely understand what you're talking about. I think one thing I, think is a barrier to minority participation and clinical trials overlaps with that. And that is uh, social needs. Um, oftentimes barriers to uh, care, including just routine care is there are social needs like financial toxicity, food insecurity, uh, health literacy, transportation. Uh, the regimen of treatment is too burdensome. There's no support for uh, you know, dealing with complications at home or even understanding how to deal with the regimen. 
other comorbidities. I think there's a big push for people to actually identify social needs through surveys uh, up front so that we can kind of meet people where they are, identify the transportation needs, because it is, um, you know, stigmatizing to tell somebody that you're, you're too poor to afford the medication. Uh, it just, it, it, it's embarrassing to say, I don't understand how to do this regimen, you know? Um, simple questions like, should I take this with food or without food? Viagra is probably the most common thing that we urologists think about where people say that it doesn't work or it works sometimes, or they're worried that the generic isn't working. They just didn't know that they forgot that you had to take it on an empty stomach. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So health literacy is another social need. I think if, if we actually, in our intake forms, when people first come in, if we assess that, we could actually preempt some of these factors up front. And I think, uh, you know, in the LGBTQ space, we talk about being kind of out to their doctor. You know, um, I am, I see with men and women or whatever, right? Um, I think you can be out about your financial situation. You can be out about your level of understanding about what was said to them. Um, you can be out about transportation problems. I think the more that the stuff is kind of asked in a non-stigmatizing way, the more, the improved the care happens because they're not forced to disclose it in a way that's embarrassing. It's just something that we think is so standard that we put it in a questionnaire. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll, you know, ask you a sort of a personal question, which is maybe talk to us a little bit about this concept of um, medical mistrust, maybe, maybe both from a patient or uh, patient or caregiver perspective. Mm -hmm. And then also maybe the other side of the coin, which is as you as a, you know, as a provider, as Dr. Adam Murphy, physician, um, talk to us a little bit about medical mistrust and, and maybe some of your experiences with that. So, I have to tell you that I have a, a MBA from UFC, uh, now called Booth uh, School of Business, but I, it was just the Graduate School of Business at University of Chicago uh, uh, at the time. And they came up with there's a concept uh, about trust uh, when you're talking about negotiations, right? And a big key to it is uh, to trust is actually uh, transparency. And so what happens in the, the medical, um, the patient-physician relationship is automatic information asymmetry. Mm -hmm. The doctor has gone to you know, med school, residency, years of practice, uh, and they've seen multiple variations of diseases in different people. And so by the time they get to this patient, they have this huge gap in, in inf information advantage that this patient does not have access to. And the more health illiterate the patient is, the bigger that information asymmetry is. Um, and the fact that we have a 15 minute, you know, window to kind of share information with people, the more daunting that is to overcome for, for the physician. So I think it's a natural mistrust that's actually built 
in real time interactions. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily because of a Tuskegee experiment or even Henrietta Lacks, you know, cells being used for cancer research, right? It's it's literally in the moment uh, information asymmetry. And I didn't actually experience medical mistrust as a kid because I really had a mom who's a nurse. Uh, my parents met at Cook County Hospital. And so I've had a really curated experience from my medical, you know, my doctors, my nurses, because my parents were choosing them for me. And so I got through medical school not understanding any issues with medical mistrust or racism within medicine at all, right? It didn't even come up at all. I had great experiences. And so it, it wasn't until I was a parent and I was a urology resident at Northwestern and I had an eight-year-old son who was asthmatic and had allergies like his dad. <laughs> and yes, I have it too, but I've run the marathon. I'm okay now. Um, but we, I took him to the ER after we had picked him up from his grandparents' house. Uh, he had been exposed to a smoker. Uh, and it was one of his triggers. And he ended up in uh, respiratory distress when we picked him up. We took him over to a South Suburban uh, emergency room. And we went inside. And as an experiment, um, I didn't say what my... I didn't say I was a physician. I didn't say I was in training. I just played, you know, quiet. And I went with my wife and my son's there. And I think it was uh, his oxygen stats were in the high 80s at the time. We got triaged. We got immediately whisked to the back uh, uh, of the ER, the PZR. And uh, they did basically all the right steps, right? They put in an IV fluid. They checked his vitals. They put on the albuterol nebulizer. I believe they gave him steroids uh, or something else, maybe a anti-cough agent. I'm not sure. It was a while back now. Um, but his heart rate went up on the monitor. They kept coming in to silence the monitor. No one seemed worried. Uh, we talked to the doctor for about two minutes about the interact or what happened while we came. For the rest of the time, we saw the, the nurse intermittently in the CNA to draw labs. And, and I remember we got whisked away to the radiology suite for an x-ray study, but no one actually said what we were doing. Uh, no one told us what the IV, what went into the IV. No one said why his heart rate was up. No one said what the mysterious gas was on his face. And I remember looking over at my wife and my son, who looked really kind of spooked about it. Uh, like they didn't know what was going on and it just felt his heart was racing. He felt nervous and his mom was nervous for him. And I looked calm. So they kind of stayed calm-ish, right? We risk out, we whisked out to the x-rays. We, we can't be with our son because it's radiation exposure, right? So we we're forced to stay outside. He's under this x-ray machine getting radiation exposure. He's looking nervous through the window at us while we're feeling like helpless a little bit, right? To help mm -hmm. them. And then we come back to the room. Um, maybe 45 minutes later, the doctor comes in uh, and hands the discharge instructions to the nurse who gives us the discharge instructions. 
a prescription for a flow vent inhaler, an albuterol inhaler, and a nebulizer machine for our home, and then says, you should follow up with your pediatrician. And it was in a piece of paper, you know, they had the little, you know, discharge instructions and asthma in you, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I, before we left, I was, I, I felt like we had um, not heard from the doctor and not had any explanation. So I released my, I disclosed that I was a physician in Northwestern University and that uh, I needed to talk to the, the emergency room attending who was seeing us, who had seen us. And I told him he comes in politely and says, yes, I'm Dr. X. And I told him, I have to tell you that I'm a physician. I'm sorry I didn't tell you what, that before, but I wanted to just see what would happen um, because I want to see how things happen for normal people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I'll tell you that no one told me anything about what was happening and it was completely scary. And uh, you know, the rates of death for asthma are much higher in the black community because they go to the ER so much and they don't, their situation doesn't improve at home. Mm -hmm. So what it taught me was basically, I didn't have any improved health literacy from that interaction. I didn't know that it was smoking that induced his asthma attack. I didn't, so I would have had him go back to his grandparents' house and that friend or that family member could have come over and smoked in front of them again. Uh, and we could have repeated this cycle again. Mm -hmm. And I would have been distrustful of the doctors because despite them doing the right care, I ended back up in the exact same space. Hmm. And the fact that they hand you this this brochure, this packet about kind of asthma and what the common medications are doesn't help me advocate for myself or improve our health you know our health promoting behavior we don't get to be more self-efficacious and so i think that actually uh medical mistrust is actually from real-time experiences from people not being educated and Therefore, they end up with worse outcomes and mistrust because they're not getting the same outcomes that they expect to get. Do, do you think that there's a component of suspiciousness that, that, that patients are suspicious about the intent of physicians or their healthcare providers? And, and if there is that, is there that, that you sort of talked about that information asymmetry? I think that was a great term that you used. If we do have that, what what can we do as you know, physicians, surgeons, and healthcare providers? You know, th there's a lot of studies about uh, trust in healthcare and trust in physicians, and you see that they they are not often correlated because while minorities, especially African Americans, do have medical mistrust in general for the healthcare system, you'll see that they rank their physician number one for trusted sources of medical information. So I think what that means is, yes, they, they, there's been historical traumas happening in, to African-Americans and other racial groups 
that are un underserved, whether they be LGBTQ or people who are transgender or whatever else, uh, language barrier, poor. Um, there have been issues for those groups, but I think that an individual's therapeutic alliance they build with their patient can overcome that and they will trust that person. And I think that's how we should focus it. You can't fix the, their belief about the, every other doctor, mm -hmm. but you can build a therapeutic relationship, therapeutic alliance with your patient by teaming up with each other to say that we are in this together to improve your health. Mm -hmm. We both have a stake in it. What about the, the, the this concept of sort of, you know, shared decision making and you know i i think we this this sort of thought of the paternalistic model right you know doc you know you're the doctor so what should i do or really um you tell me what's best for me and and i i wonder in many cases going back to one of the key points you've brought up several times now um i suspect that's related to health literacy mm -hmm. um and, and thus, you know, a patient who is maybe not as health literate is going to rely on, you know, their doctor, their provider to help or make the decision for them, which, which really doesn't sort of follow what we would ideally like to have, which is some sort of shared decision-making model where the patient is equipped to make a decision that is evidence-based. And you're helping them, of course. I mean, they're not yeah. on a, in a vacuum. But talk a little bit about that, that, this sort of, you know, doctor, you make the decision and, and how can we get that evolving towards something that's a little bit more of an educated shared decision-making uh, discussion? Um, I'll tell you that, that that line scares me when patients say it to me because it means that they have had so little engagement in the health-making, the health decision-making with their doctor that they've given up on the idea that they should even engage in the conversation, hmm. right? So my job often, if it's not urgent, Right, if it's something that is a chronic problem or something that you can build over a three, six month time frame, you know, for us, we have a lot of those diseases with us, um, whether it be medical kidney stone management or non prostatic hyperplasia or erectile dysfunction. We have time to, to let people learn. So I try to refer people to good sources of information. Uh, that I select that I think is well-written or in, at a, no, a low enough education level. I try for sixth to eighth grade. Some people need less than that, actually. But my goal is sixth to eighth grade reading level so that they can get an understanding of what the prostate is. What are things that cause erectile dysfunction? So that when I, t and I draw a lot of pictures. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, my nurses always say that um, all the penises and testicles are too large, not drawing a scale. <laughs> my images that I'm trying to show prosthetic enlargement and obstruction. <laughs> so you have to overemphasize that in terms of the bladder. Um, but it, it, when I talk about how Flomax works or finasteride works, I'm showing, I'm drawing the little reduction in the prostate size or the, the, the prosthetic urethra widening from smooth muscle relaxation so they can understand why compliance is important. So they can understand why retrograde ejaculation happens because you know you have the path of least resistance 
being toward the bladder neck and not out the penis anymore. Uh, so that people don't, there's, there's suspicion that people want to do eugenics still in the black community, especially. Um, and men just like to see semen as an outcome of their sexual efforts. So it's just part of the fun for some people. Um, even higher in, in the gay community. Um, so I think we have to kind of let them understand why this is happening uh, so that they can make a decision about whether they go finasteride or, or tamsulosin or Eurolift or whatever, right? So that you can uh, let them take part in the risk decision making, you know, decision making. You know, like I present the risk of and side effects of all these things so they can kind of say, well, what do I want to deal with? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about the the, the share pro, uh, the share approach, right? Is that, that's an AHRQ uh, initiative geared towards healthcare providers. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, first of all, you gave me the opportunity to talk about this <laughs> webinar we made, so I'm, but I'm glad to talk about it now because it was, it's helped me in my own practice for sure. Um, you know, doctors, I should say medical providers of all levels are taught to educate patients primarily and to be, to, we do assess people's values uh, to a degree, for sure, but we oftentimes lead a patient towards a decision. That's kind of how we're trained, right? Because patients are, have not gone through medical school and residency, and and don't have not practiced medicine. Most of them, so that information asymmetry means that we're better equipped to make the decision in many ways. Except, uh, we should we don't do a good enough job of assessing their values in that and letting them engage in it because if they're the more they're engaged the more that they'll be compliant with it because they believe in the regimen they understand what what success looks like should look like and understand why they should or shouldn't be compliant um so an example that i'll give you is when we talked i didn't understand it until very recently uh how if you were given a uh, radiation for um, prostate cancer, for example, before space or the rates of rectal irritation and bleeding after radiation treatment could be fairly high. So I didn't counsel my gay and bisexual men about the impact on their sex life because it wasn't something that they ever told me about because I didn't assess their values in that way. I told them the, the, the evidence-based risks and benefits that we had in our and the various papers and meta-analyses we have about the side effects of radiation, right? Versus active surveillance versus radical prostatectomy. And climacteria didn't come up, arousal incontinence didn't come up, rectal pain and bleeding didn't come up. And so if I don't engage them, they can't actually tell me what is happening to them for me to become more precise in my medicine to give them precision medicine. So the SHARE approach essentially uh, is seek, the assets for seeking your patient's participation and engaging in this decision-making process. The, so the H is helping your patients explore uh, and compare the, uh, the treatment options that they have. The A is assessing their values and preferences. 
um, you know, that are relevant, relevant for the, the treatment options that we have. And then four is the, the fourth thing is the R or to, to help them reach a decision. And then at the, step five is to actually evaluate that so that you can kind of validate their choice or talk about why you are concerned about their choice and what we should be looking for out for in the future. So um, this one was uh, the one we chose because it actually was easy to remember with the mnemonic share, uh, but it was also vetted by a trusted you know, health agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we trialed it with urologists, practicing urologists, they were AUA members. And I can tell you from watching these folks, we really are good at educating and leading. It was very hard to get people to start using the share approach. Hmm. Uh, uh, they could seek their participation well, but helping them explore and compare the treatment options was hard for folks because they had to think about, okay, well, what would a patient care about as outcomes that I need to give them an option with, right? If, so for me, I think about it with people who are in, in new relationships uh, and they may have, a, a, you know, some extra capsular extension or something with their prostate cancer by MRI or something. We may talk about the fact that if they're in a new relationship, the erectile dysfunction that's going to happen right after surgery is going to uh, may affect whether they can bond to their partner. Mm-hmm. It, it, they, it may actually run that partner away. Right. So maybe in the last five or seven minutes now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of pose a few questions to you and I'm going to have you give me your solutions to it. Because I think ultimately um, what we always hope in when we when we have these discussions is there, there's like a, there's a light. Right. You know, we have problems, but like, what are we going to do? And so, um, you know, you're, you're well-versed in this space. So I'm going to start, I can think of a few modifiable barriers that are probably more common in minority populations. So I'm going to feed them to you. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on what you think are, are solutions that can be employed that either you do or could be employed within other health systems. So first one, uh, language barrier. So what are some solutions for language barrier that, uh, for the minority populations? You know, I think... Uh, I used to be really guilty of this. I try to have an interpreter in the room with me that's a medical interpreter, not the family member of the, of the patient, not uh, kind of my Spanglish. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, even when I was really great with Spanish, what I realized is that there are certain nuanced concepts that the patient would, would hold back on. And, dis- and disclosing about their values. And um, when I would listen to the, to the interpreters for that were family members, they were filtering it incorrectly because I knew enough Spanish to know that that's not what I said, mm. right? Um, so, and I think you also have to give the patient the right to be alone without that family member. If it's their son or daughter, their sibling even, they may not want to talk about their sexual health problems, their erectile issues, as openly as they would want to when it comes mm-hmm. to some of our side effects uh, from treatment. So I think getting a language line or an interpreter in there is actually much better 
than that. And also then having your instructions uh, interpreted into other languages mm-hmm. as often as possible, not relying on their family member to do it. Second, uh, second sort of barrier that I think uh, minorities and, and minority ethnic populations face, health literacy. You've talked about this a few times in this podcast, and we've talked about it even before, I think, on a prior podcast. So what are some solutions from the health literacy realm um, that, that you've employed in your practice or you think are very important for us to employ into clinical practices? I, th- I think that people should take health literacy a little bit more seriously because it's a big driver of decision regret. The reason why people are upset after their treatments is because they weren't aware of the implication of that side effect before they got there. And so it's like getting a lemon, uh, you know, when you go to a used car dealer, you know, mm-hmm. it's, I think urologists and provi- urology care providers should think about health literacy as a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, not just a patient's problem, but also their problem, because that's who sues besides people who are angry because they didn't get information, that they had a bad outcome that they didn't feel like they were aware of, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they didn't feel like someone was there to help them get through that process enough. That's usually uh, one of the key contributors to lawsuits. So uh, what can you do about health literacy is if you if people you can tell need more time, need more education, I give people things to read for homework and I bring them back in two to three months and we revisit that conversation. And usually in that first time, I do lifestyle modifications on that first visit, letting them do what they need to do. Let's say it's um, the diabetic with LUTs, right? I let them work on their, getting rid of all the sugars in their diet, all the the Mm -hmm. energy drinks and soda and desserts, right? Work on that first, getting their hemoglobin A1C down. So I'll see if their lifestyle modifications are working before I start Flomax or an anticholinergic for their overactive bladder symptoms. And then uh, I'll give them something to read about it. It's a simple, like, you know, one of the patient brochures off the wall. And I will have drawn that picture of what the bladder, the prostate, the urethra looked like and why as their prostate has grown, it's causing a thickened bladder wall, more pressure, maybe sense on their bladder, in their bladder trigone. And that's the urgency they're feeling. You got to relieve that extra pressure, make their prostate, their bladders work less hard, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm trying to conceptualize it for them so that they can understand why I'm going to recommend as a next step mm-hmm. medication. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we can do a lot when there is time to allow them to engage in the discussion by building their health literacy first. Third scenario. Um... Patients unfamiliar with your healthcare environment. So, you know, uh, the example I would give you is, you know, Hershey, uh, Penn State Health is in Hershey, Pennsylvania, but we have patients who come in from areas of lower socioeconomic status, you know, Mm -hmm. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Lancaster, Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, much more urban populations. So here they are, they're walking into Penn State Health, so totally new, Uh, maybe they have cancer, they're walking in, it's a different healthcare system. Um, it's a big university hospital. Um, what should we be thinking about for patients who are coming into these sort of these new healthcare 
systems where you can easily see them just being thoroughly overwhelmed without any support structure as they walk in and, you know, they see the doctor for the 35 minutes um, in that office setting. And then suddenly, you know, that's it. Um, what can we do there? Uh, so obviously most of us have like after visit summaries we print out, right? Mm -hmm. And D parts or whatever. If you're in, if you're fortunate to be in those kinds of settings, uh, I actually will uh, kind of write on the back of that oftentimes if there are three things, that's the order of the things that I want them to do. So you're going to go to the lab to get your B1 and creatinine measured before you go get the CAT scan, before we talk about the results of your hematuria evaluation in three months. Um, so I do my communication well by kind of spelling it out more clearly. And then the other thing I do is refer people to the patient advocate and the, and the uh, social workers way more often when it comes to insurance, because people who are on Medicaid plans may temporarily need a supplemental insurance if they're going to go through something cost prohibitive, right? Mm -hmm. Whether Even if it's active surveillance, you know, or radiation, 20% for a Medicare you know, participant may be a lot of money. So uh, navigation, uh, the financial counselors, uh, Fortunately, I sometimes will leverage my research coordinators. I'm fortunate enough to work as a researcher as well. I train my research coordinators to be patient navigators as well, hmm. to allow them to be flexible with appointments and kind of explain basics. So if someone should look for a prostate biopsy, if I'm recruiting them or my coordinators in the clinic, they've met them, mm -hmm. they can ask my coordinator what a prostate biopsy entails. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so they'll have my coordinator's phone number, research coordinator phone, not mm -hmm. their personal phone number, mm -hmm. but like I have a coordinator cell phone. Those folks will call them and act like they're a member of the team. I train them specifically to say what's in the brochures. Mm -hmm. They're not just saying whatever they see. It's <laughs> pretty specific, you know? Um, uh, so if you're lucky enough to have that, you're, it's good. Nurses, uh, you know, I give out my cell phone a lot more than I would like to in real life because if they have a language barrier, if they're from another country, if they're very health illiterate, uh, I don't know if that's really a word, but health, you know, low health, health literacy, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I'll give them more time to, I'm a, I'm a, I can be the, the rescue at times. Well, Adam, I, I really want to thank you, uh, as always, very, very thoughtful. I think you you really conceptualize a lot of this uh, really well. And, and obviously, uh, I'm really appreciative, as is the AUA, of your time, especially on a, <laughs> on a Friday afternoon after you were traveling uh, early this morning. So again, Adam, uh, thank you so much uh, for your time and, and obviously your, your expertise in this space. Thank you, Dr. Rama, for your time and your your interest in this topic. It's been fun to, to explore it, and I'm learning as I'm, we're talking. No, that's great. And for our audience, we want to thank you very much for your time and your attention, and certainly uh, visit us at auanet.org/university. Uh, Adam, have a have a great weekend and hopefully a restful one. Thank you. You too. <laughs>